murder, religion, domestic violence, money, pornography, depravity, manipulation. The Susan Powell case is the worst of the worst. How did it all go so wrong? If you ask those close to Susan, all she ever really wanted was to be a wife and a mother. In 2009, Susan worked a full-time job, was an amazing mom to her two little boys, Charlie and Brayden, and she was very active in her church. It was her refuge in a stormy marriage. On the outside, they appeared to be a happy family, but on the inside, well, nobody could imagine the kind of hell Susan was going through. Being controlled and manipulated and degraded by an emotionally abusive husband, Josh. Susan wanted out, threatened a divorce, but Josh made it crystal clear that if she tried to leave him, there would be consequences. So Susan made a video documenting the family's possession in case something happened to her. She hid that video and a secret will in a safe deposit box that she made sure Josh didn't know about. In the will, she expressed her fears, the worry over the multi-million dollar life insurance policy in her name, the threatening arguments with Josh. Susan wrote in this last will and testament, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. Just 16 months later, Susan disappeared. The only thing left were the breadcrumbs she left behind. Tragic that just three years later, those breadcrumbs weren't enough to save her boys from their father. Okay, how long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this, could, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday and he... He didn't get his kids back. And this is really, I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. And now, over 10 years later, the Cox family is still hoping for some kind of justice. So when he was a five and a seven year old, being filled with a hatchet and being set on fire, I mean, it, 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 it's the worst of the worst. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. And what a horrific crime it is. And not just one, but a series of crimes that started way back before Josh was even born. This case goes back generations. And I'm sure as we'll hear in your story, Carolyn, Josh Powell didn't come out of some immaculate home. There is a lot of family history there of criminal activity, of depraved behavior. And it's really sad because not that I feel sorry for Josh at all, believe me, but it's almost like, where did it start? You have to wonder, did it start with Josh's father or Josh's father's father or his father's, you know, how far back, how many generations could this have gone? It just makes you wonder. So, okay. Well, Kim, I'm so (laughs) glad that you want to start at the beginning because you know what? I basically sunk my teeth into this story and... 
I want to start at the beginning. The whirlwind romance of Susan Cox and Josh Powell began at a dinner party, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mixer, if you will, and it was hosted by then 24-year-old Josh Powell at his apartment in Tacoma, Washington. It was the year 2000, a new millennium, and love was in the air. That night, 19-year-old Susan Cox fell head over heels for Josh. Ironic that Josh was having an LDS get-together considering what would come later, that he would, like his father, totally reject his faith, but Kim, file that away. It won't be the first irony, nor will it be the last in this tale of... It's pure evil, basically. But back then... Susan was walking on air. I mean, you know what that's like when you're in a new relationship. You're so excited. Every moment that she didn't spend in beauty school or at her part-time retail job, she spent at Josh's place. And in less than two months after Josh had that party, he and Susan were engaged. Susan's family wasn't too happy about the relationship. They encouraged her to wait But Susan had made up her mind. She loved Josh and wanted to spend the rest of her life with him. And on the surface, the Cox and Powell families appeared to have a lot in common. You know, both were big families, a lot of kids, and they were both Mormon families. But what Susan didn't know was that Josh had a dark side, and so did his family. Steve and Terica, those are Josh's parents, were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, when they got married. But during their marriage, Steve soured on the idea of religion, and he began to openly mock Terica for her beliefs in front of the children. This caused not only friction in their growing family, it was just downright toxic as battles over religion and how to raise the children were waged in the Powell home. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was something sacred to Terica, but it wasn't just the religion. Steve flat out refused to have boundaries with their five kids, and he was emotionally abusive to Terica. And there was the pornography, According to Terica's divorce filings in 1992, Steve had an obsessive interest in pornography, which she alleged he shared with their three sons. Wasn't there some discussion that he had a belief that basically people are animals and so we should be able to you know, have relations at any time with anyone in an animalistic way? I mean, he really didn't see boundaries when it comes came to age, let's say, or species. From what I understand, he kind of thought you could do whatever you wanted. And that, like, the conflict that happened with, you know, his wife, Terika, who wanted to just have this, you know, happy family and be in their re- religion with their church. And he just didn't want any of that. And And teaching your kids to openly mock their mother. I mean, it's just like... Not only is it sad for Terika, but it's really it's really sad for the kids, you know? I mean Oh, absolutely. It it it's it's just like in a lot of domestic abuse and this seems like with this case, it's it's not physical in this case. It's mental. It's the mental and the, you know, belittling and and so that's an important note to keep in mind as you talked about Kim with the history of this case and when did it begin? So, you know, talking about Steve's actions in his court filings, he claimed that Terica 
was into herbs and natural healing and mixed New Age mysticism with Mormonism and practiced, quote, witchcraft and devil worship. So it's a real twisting of, you know, I'm sure she was just into like herbs, right? And then he like turns it into this whole like weird, weird thing. Yeah. Like she just takes St. John's wort or something <laughs> yeah, to, you know, lift yeah. her mood and all of a sudden she's a witch. Yeah, she's like this woo-woo lady. Exactly. So so basically in those same court documents, they also revealed that Josh was an extremely troubled teen. He allegedly killed his sister's gerbils, threatened his mother with a butcher knife when she asked him to be more respectful, and that Josh was following his father's footsteps when it came to contempt for women and authority. Now, it is, we should note here that, that, that as a teen, Josh also attempted to commit suicide. Well, I think it clearly shows that he knew that there was something wrong with his home life and was trying to escape it. Yeah, exactly. But none of this was on display during Susan and Josh's courtship. And you mean he didn't tell her before they got engaged? <laughs> yeah. Hey, guess yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure he tried. I, I don't know, you know, in all the research that I did, I don't know how much of his history that he shared with Susan. You know, that's something, but I, I certainly believe that, you know, he would want to keep that under wraps. I and have a feeling he shared a lot of it with her at some point, mm -hmm. because I know that um, he had written letters to his high school girlfriend or college girlfriend before he met Susan must have been a high school girlfriend um, where he did talk about his feelings and his home life and his family relationships. So he, he did disclose some of this to other females. So I, one could assume that he would share it with his wife. Well, it wasn't enough to stop her from getting married to him. And in 2001, well, and maybe it was maybe it was later, too. Maybe yeah, it wasn't until yeah. after they got married. Yeah, exactly. Because I think at that time, he was really trying to, you know, he was hosting these LDS parties. He was, you know, he hadn't rejected the church yet. He was very much like wanted to get on the straight and narrow, wanted to, to have a good relationship. And so Susan and Josh tied the knot in an LDS church in 2001. But from the beginning of their marriage, you know, Josh had issues holding down a job despite having a bachelor's degree in business from UW and being a computer whiz. Something always came up, which put a strain on their finances and their relationship throughout their marriage. And here's another irony. Josh was so controlling over Susan's money, nitpicking everything she spent money on, while at the same time, he was a complete spendthrift. Only he would, you know, buy things for himself. In fact, it was the loss of a job that prompted Susan and Josh to temporarily move in with Josh's dad, Steve, when they were newly married. Now, most people, like, I lived with our my mother-in-law, and it was like, okay, this is great. You know, we get to live rent-free, and, you know, we can save money and get out of debt. But young Susan had no idea what was in store for her at the Powell residence in Puyallup. Under such close quarters, it didn't take long for Steve, again, Josh's dad, to become infatuated with his new daughter-in-law. And that infatuation quickly morphed into something beyond obsession. Steve literally followed Susan around the house with a camcorder. He Ugh. was shameless, not being shy about recording her every move and zooming in on her private parts. Years later, I'm 
looking at the look on your face, and I know it just goes on. How does she? How do you stay there? I mean, I know that you're married, and I know that you want it to work out, but that would have been enough. I would have been out of there. Well, and here's the thing: she's still so young. I mean. You know, you look at what you're like now as an adult woman and what you were like when you were 19 or 20 years old. And it's like, I'm sure she was like, what is happening here? This goes against everything that I know about, right? I mean, it would go against what I would think, but I I don't know. I mean, but especially with somebody who is so enveloped in their church and in those teachings, I mean, hi, this obviously goes against all kinds of religious teachings to be lusting after someone else's wife, to be lusting after your son's wife. And at this point, I mean, had Stephen exited the church at this point? He already had, right? Oh, yeah. Stephen had like gone off the rails. Like, So that must have been really uncomfortable for Susan if she is a devout member of the church Mm -hmm. to be under someone's roof who has so blatantly disregarded all of the teachings. Yeah, I think that years later, we would find out just how twisted Steve's obsession with Susan would become after police released a copy of his journal and videos and photos of Susan, which included evidence that he'd use a small mirror to spy on her while she used the bathroom. He stole her underwear and pantyhose to masturbate with, which he would film himself and collected her used feminine products, hair, and toenail what? clippings. What? Wait. Whoa. <laughs> Rewind. Yeah, I know. Used feminine products. That is disgusting. I'm sorry. I don't care how you feel about somebody. Grabbing somebody's old shirt that they wore because it smells like them is a whole other level than taking a dirty tampon. Well, I mean, and, that is nasty. Well, and thank goodness that she... She didn't know this at the time. I mean, she felt his, like, spying eyes. But I think that had she... And and she could feel it and she knew it. But, I mean, this takes it to such a level that you can't even wrap your your hands around that. You know, you really can't. So he also read her adult journals and even posted these crazy love songs online about Susan under a different name. But the obsession came to a head in 2003 when Steve was so overwrought with his desire for Susan that he actually told her about his feelings, hoping she would confirm what, in his mind, he already believed, that she was just as much in love with him as he is with her. And this confession, like crazily, well, not so crazily, because he always had this camcorder with him, was inadvertently captured, the audio of it was captured on his recorder. And from that audio recording, two things come through crystal clear, that Susan was obviously stunned and upset by his feelings for her, and firmly explained that she loved her husband, and he was her father-in-law, nothing else. Now, what's messed up completely is that Susan told Josh and the couple eventually moved to West Valley City, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City in 2004. They said that the move was for job opportunities, but Susan was just wanted to get away from Steve. And this is a part that's just, I mean, out of so many heartbreaking parts in the story. But, you know, imagine, you know, your your father-in-law is a predator. You tell your husband And she felt betrayed by Josh because not only did he not stick up for her to his father, but he wouldn't cut ties with his dad. 
In fact, he allowed his dad to convince him that Susan had misrepresented his advances. Josh would have these long conversations over the phone with his dad, even though it upset Susan. And Susan believed that Steve was doing it on purpose to break them up so he could have her for himself. Now, but Josh was okay with them moving to the Salt Lake City area to get away from his dad. At least there was maybe like a little bit of give on his side of things. Like I could see where Susan might think there was a flicker of hope that their marriage could be saved, that their relationship could be saved if they got away from the dad, which they did. So even though she was still frustrated that they had a relationship, I could see where she wouldn't necessarily say, that's it, I'm leaving. Because at least Josh took that step of moving away from the area. Yeah, that that is true. The The sad part is, is that I think that you know, when something like this happens, I mean, she is, it's almost like being victimized twice, right? Oh, yeah. Like first, the first the father in law does this. And then the husband basically, you know, yes, he takes action. But at the end of the day, he's he he goes back on it. And he like allows his dad to manipulate him into acting like, oh, this was just all in her head. You know, she she deserved it. She wanted it. I mean, I don't know what those conversations were. But but it's the same kind of story that we hear when it comes to a woman being or a girl being ogled by somebody and it's quote unquote her fault right it's just a dysfunctional triangle and susan documented it in her journals there was also another dysfunction that was being realized that josh began repeating a pattern from his own parents marriage when he first met susan remember he was hosting those lds parties and he was really active in the church and now like his father in his marriage before he was becoming disillusioned with his faith and began rejecting LDS. Now, on the bright side, Susan got her wish to be a wife and mother. Charlie was born in 2005 and Braden in 2007. And even though Susan yearned to have more children and be a stay-at-home mom, she continued to work and do really well at her job at Wells Fargo. And she was actually the main breadwinner. And I say that actually because Josh even still controlled her every move how much she spent and belittled her when he felt that she spent too much money on food and essentials. Josh even got rid of their second car because he said it cost too much and she had to ride her bike back and forth. I mean, it's one thing to want to ride your bike on your own because you want to be healthy, but it's another thing to have your husband just sell your car from right underneath you and you have no choice in the matter. Again, this case is about the emotional abuse. I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think he was physically abusive. I I find it hard to believe. Well, not hard to believe, but difficult to understand a woman who would allow her husband to sell her car out from under her. I I couldn't imagine that happening in my household if it even got discussed. I I just I, I can't even imagine that. It just sounds so 1950s. I think that their relationship was a real slow roll. You know how sometimes like stuff happens in your life and like one thing happens and then another thing and then and then your your tolerance to be able to you know, he was super manipulative. I don't know. I mean, I I find it I just find it sad because I think he just wore her down, you know? Yeah. I mean, have you ever been worn down? If, well, yeah, I mean, there are definitely times where it's like, pick my battles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the car is like a huge thing. And I totally get you saying that. But I mean, it's just it feels like as I've been following the story, it's like, she was worn down and her idea of what she wanted 
you know, the family, the children, the church. I mean, they're so, he just wore her down. And, and it's sad because for whatever reason, there was always enough meat on the bone for Josh to buy the things that he wanted, like computers and expensive tools for himself. Documents later released by Utah police show that Susan was so unhappy in their marriage that Josh was very controlling, as I said, emotionally abusive, accusing her of being a religious fanatic, which is sounding exactly like his dad. When she asked for control of her own money so she could just give tithing to the church, he wouldn't even let her give tithing to the church with her own money. And things had gotten so bad in 2008 that Susan went and spoke to a divorce attorney. The attorney advised Susan to take a video documenting the couple's belongings. Uh, this is me. July 29th, 2008. Covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. So a month before Susan made that video in July 2008, she also, Kim, she wrote a secret will that she kept in a safe deposit box with directions that Josh not be allowed to see it. In this letter, Susan says, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. She added, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Susan's letter documented that she had given Josh an ultimatum to start treating her better or she would file for divorce. And according to Susan, he responded with threats. Quote, this is this is Josh. There will be no lawyers, only a mediator, and I will ruin you. He added, quote, you, Susan, would be destroyed and your life would be over and the boys will not grow up with a mom and dad, end quote. She says in her letter, if anything happened to her, she wanted her dad, Chuck Cox, to have control over her children. So back to your car, you know, how you can't even imagine that. I mean, I think most of us can't, but it's like it shows that it's like she knew that this was not right and she was scared. You know, she was yeah. scared. But it's interesting, though, in that video that in a way she still sounded hopeful that there was somehow going to be a way to save the marriage. Well, according to the research that I did, she kept trying, like friends would say, get, you know, get away from him, you know, and she, I think she just couldn't let go of that idea of this family marriage, you know, her kids not being, you know, she didn't want to get a divorce. Like, I think that it just was that traditional life was so important to her that she kept wanting to give him more chances but susan's fear for herself and her children that she documented but ultimately did little to ensure either her safety or her children's safety and just over 15 months later on december 6 2009 susan's worst fear would come to pass now that was a sunday and Susan and Charlie and Braden went to church services. Josh stayed at home. And later that day, one of Susan's friends, a neighbor, came over to help her untangle some snarled yarn. And the neighbor observed Josh making pancakes for the family, which was strange because, you know, it was generally known that Josh refused to cook. And according to interviews with Chuck Cox, that's Susan's dad, you know, after the disappearance, he believes that Josh put muscle relaxants 
in the pancakes that he fed to Susan. There's no um, evidence to support that, but that's what he believes. The neighbor said that she left the Powell house at around five o'clock that evening after Susan suddenly got up and went to lay down because she didn't feel well. Oh. And, and this neighbor would be the last person to see Susan alive. The wow. next morning, when Susan didn't drop the boys off at daycare, the teacher was immediately worried, so she called Josh's family. Josh's mom and sister went to Susan and Josh's home. They noticed there weren't any tire tracks in the snow, and the house looked deserted, because remember, this is Utah. And they couldn't reach Susan or Josh on their cell phones, and they hadn't shown up at work either. So it didn't take long for them to call 911 that morning, because it was just, Susan was like, she was always on time. She was very organized. She was very diligent. And and the daycare lady just knew right away that something just wasn't right. And so police arrived at the Powell home and the family there that remember the Josh's mom and his sister were worried that the family were, were victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. So they got permission from Josh's sister and mom to smash a window and enter the house. The family wasn't there, but police noticed something strange. There was a wet spot on the couch with two box fans blowing at that spot. Susan's purse, her wallet, and ID were at the house. And it was radio silence from Josh and Susan for the rest of that day. Family was frantic, but around 5 o'clock that evening, the family was relieved when Josh finally answered his phone and said he was on his way back from a camping trip with the boys. Where was Susan, they asked. Josh claimed she should be at work, and he didn't know where she was, but she wasn't at work. So Josh was asked to go to the police station. He brought his kids, Charlie and Brayden, with him during this interview. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, you get home, it's like getting to be dinner time and you bring your kids, these little tiny kids, like two and four to the police station. You know, their mom's not there. So then Josh unpacked this bizarre story to detectives that he left his sweep, his sleeping wife at home in the dead of night to take his little boys, four-year-old Charlie and two-year-old Braden camping in the Utah desert during a snowstorm in sub-freezing temperatures. And he had no idea where his wife was. When detectives pressed John about why he didn't tell his employer or the daycare provider that he wouldn't be at work and they wouldn't be at school, Josh said that he thought it was Sunday and not Monday. So he oh my, apparently got okay. his days days messed up. I'm sorry. When you have a wife who is that into the church, you know when Sunday is. You <laughs> yeah. can't tell me he didn't know when Sunday was. Exactly. And on top of that, did he have camping gear in his car? Like, was there evidence to support his story at all? I think he had, I definitely think he had camping gear in his car. I think he also had like this huge blowtorch thing in there too, because, you know, they were making s'mores. <laughs> Um, police became even more suspicious as the following days unfolded. Josh, when Josh came home from that camping trip, police say that he had Susan's cell phone in the minivan with him. The SIM card had been removed and Josh couldn't explain why he had her phone or why he had left messages on her voicemail when he had the phone with him, right? Detectives hmm. also tried to retrace his, to retrace Josh's story of camping, but from the beginning, they couldn't find any evidence to support this campsite that Josh had described. 
And then during search warrants of the house, they found a small amount of blood on the floor by the recently cleaned sofa and carpet in their house. And Josh definitely had a motive, a life insurance policy worth over a million dollars. Remember, in her note, she was scared. I mean, how scary is that? You have this huge life insurance policy and you're scared that your husband is going to do something to you. So you write this secret will. It's just unbelievable. And then there was the strange way Josh was acting during his conversations with police. He was more concerned about photographs they had taken of his hands, you know, after when he came into the police department, as opposed to concern about his wife's disappearance. Let me explain something to you. You're not under arrest, okay? If you were under arrest, I would have came to your home, I would have put handcuffs on you, and I would have brought you here, okay? Um, so understand that right now. You're not under arrest for anything, okay? Um, the problem that we have and the what we're investigating is what? A missing person, right? You're right. That Try missing person her. being your wife. And initially, this all turned out to be basically missing people, an entire family. And that's why we were notified. Okay? Okay. And that's why we were at your home. That's why we broke the window into your home to make sure that if there was anybody in there that they were okay. Okay. This report came from your mom, which is obviously very concerned, and that was started by the daycare provider. By the okay. way, she has a key to my house. Okay. Daycare provider has a key, so I don't know why they why they had to break the window when well, she started it and she had a key. Okay. Well, that was not brought to our attention, obviously. Okay. Um... So the concern here is obviously, and you, you mentioned that we talked. And by the way, I just. We spoke yesterday, um, got some general stuff from you. All right. Okay. I, mean, what, I mean, what do you want us to do? Do you not want us to talk to you? Do you not want us to talk to anybody and just leave no, you alone no, and I hope that she shows up? Is that what you want us to do? No. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to do my job. You know what I'm saying? Who's the closest person to her? Who's the closest I mean, person to her? Who? That's me. Exactly. So you're telling me that you do not want to come in here and talk to me and answer my questions they, so we can try to figure out where potentially she could be. They, they told me that that I should have an attorney because you don't know what you don't know what's going on. You, they said that I'm, you know, pretty much in over my head. Hmm. Okay. You're in over your head. Because your wife is missing. Basically, the detective is like, why are you not being helpful? You guys called us because of a missing person. You know, your family called us. We're just trying to get to the bottom of this. Why, why are you not helping us? Don't yeah. you want us to find your wife? And he was like, uh, well, uh, just, just being a total weirdo. And there was something else that raised eyebrows. The day after Susan went missing, Josh went in for another interview. He was like late going in. So Josh walked out of the police station after that interview. He didn't wait for the minivan that they were still processing the evidence. They were collecting evidence from it. 
Instead, he called a taxi that picked him up at the police station and drove him to the Salt Lake City Airport. Josh then rented a car for two days. During that time, he racked up over 800 miles on the car. And now authorities had no idea where he went or what he was doing. And there were other red flags. Josh withdrew Charlie and Braden from daycare, cashed in Susan's retirement accounts, and canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions. And then also during interviews of close friends and co-workers, police say that one person that they interviewed alleged that Josh had told them if he wanted to get rid of a body, he would hide it in an abandoned mine shaft, that the Utah desert was full of them. And they are. The Utah desert is full of them. Yeah. And also when they interviewed four-year-old Charlie about who went camping charlie said his mom went with them but added that his mom didn't come back with them oh that's heartbreaking i know next week in part two of the disappearance of susan powell we'll continue to peel back the layers of susan's disappearance how josh packed up charlie and Braden to go live with his dad a home investigators would refer to later as a house of horrors so many warning signs went unheeded. Only the devil himself could have foreseen how Susan's precious little angels would suffer at the hands of their own father. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime.